0: Malachi chapter 2, verse 10-16, to 16. hear the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You have probably heard people talk about the Bible and say things like, you know, we really don't know what's in the Bible. It's a very old book, and it was in different languages, and it's been translated many times, and interpreted in many different ways, so so we really don't know what's in it. Now, um, that may be a sincere objection to the Bible, but it's based on ignorance of the amazing and the unique way that God has preserved this book better than any other book in all of antiquity, and in the original languages in which it was written, to which we still have access. Now, we do have to admit that there are some sections of the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, that are very difficult to translate because of our imperfect knowledge of Hebrew, and, even if we're able to translate them right, there are some sections that are difficult to interpret. And we have two of those in this text, two verses in this text, and we'll get to those toward the end of the text. Now, you may also have heard people say, well, the Bible's an old book, it's not really very relevant to modern life. I mean, how could a book that was written thousands of years ago be relevant this day and age? Well, once again, we have today's text. And what we have in today's text is we have these a couple of verses that are hard to understand. But I want you to see this as kind of a a pattern for all of Scripture. If we have these couple verses that are hard to understand, and relatively few others in the whole of Scripture, we have a message that is not hard to understand. We have a message in the Bible that is exceedingly clear. We do know what the Bible's message is. And, in this text in particular, in spite of having a couple difficult verses, we have a message that is not only very, very clear, but it is also very relevant some 2,400 years after it was written. Why? Because it speaks of marriage, it speaks of divorce, and it speaks of foreign trophy wives. And so um, this is a very up to date and relevant message in every age. Now, Once again, how does the pattern of these disputes between God and his people go? God comes and he confronts them with something. And then they, in a sense, put their hands on their hips and say, Oh yeah? Prove it to us. And so he does. And he proves it to them. And after he proves it to them, he points them in the right direction about how to respond. Now here, in this section, we have much of Malachi's voice. In other disputes, we have the Lord directly, says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. Here we have much of Malachi's preaching. And he begins this dispute even as he did in chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, he began a dispute with that which was indisputable. And he does it again. One six says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. No objection. Everybody understands that. Here, he begins with other things that are indisputable, but he does it in the form of two questions. He says, Have we not all one Father? What would the people have said? Yes. Of course. And then he says, Has not one God created us? And the answer would be, what? Yes. yes of course. And he's speaking probably not about the the creation of humanity, but the creation of Israel, that God specially made Israel as His people. And then Malachi asked, why then, including himself humbly, why then are we faithless? If it's, if it's true that we have one Father, if it's true that God has specially made us as a people, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, What he says here is, if we are faithless to one another, we are being faithless to God. Did you see how that works? He says, why are we being faithless to one another and profaning the covenant with our God? And so our treatment of one another affects our relationship with God. And we cannot be faithless to one another without betraying God. Now, he mentions here the covenant with our fathers. And I refer you back to Genesis 15. You can go back to Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15. Genesis 12, where God calls Abram out of the nations. And he makes him and his family his special possession. And then in Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he seals the covenant with a a covenant ceremony. He is setting up a special relationship with Abraham, and is a covenant mainly of promise that God would make Abraham a great nation, that he would bless him, that he would bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, that he would bless all the nation in Abraham's descendant. He would give him the land and so on. And God promised to do all this. And then we have that famous verse that we find in the New Testament. And Abram believed God. That's what Abram's part was, to believe God. And he did. And I refer you to that because that's that's how God began to create Israel. Then he had his son Isaac. Isaac had his son Jacob. Jacob had his sons, the the twelve tribes of Israel. And here we find a piling up of names. Look at the text. It says... In uh, verse 11, Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Three different names. He refers to the people as Judah, refers to them as Israel, refers to them as Jerusalem. And this cuts both ways. This is kind of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, he's saying, you, you, this tiny remnant. You remember where they are? They had been exiled to Babylon. They had come back during the reign of Persia. They were—they had rebuilt Jerusalem, and they had reestablished temple worship. But they were few, they were poor, they were surrounded by enemies. But God says through Malachi, You, this tiny, weak, poor, beleaguered remnant, you are Judah. You are Israel, you are Jerusalem, you are the heirs of my covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the positive side. But then he also says to them, through naming all these names, you're all faithless. If he just said Judah, Judah might have said, yeah, we're... Uh, uh, or Israel might have said, yeah, Judah's faithless, but we're Okay. Or if he just said Jerusalem, I said, yeah, well, we don't live in Jerusalem, we're okay. But here, he piles up these names, and he indicts everyone. And he even includes himself, although he's not guilty of the sin he's about to mention. Now, in verse 11, it says, "...Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves." Now, this word sanctuary is the word holiness. And so here they translate it as sanctuary. But I think a better translation, a better, the translation is fine because sanctuary is holy, the holy place. But probably it refers to the holy people, that is to Israel. Because then it says, whom he loves. And let me ask you, does he love his temple? Well, he, he knocks it down when the people are unfaithful. But does he love his people? Oh, yes. And that's the promise of the covenant. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And so I think we should read this as, they have profaned themselves. They have profaned the holy covenant people of Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, whom the Lord loves. Do you remember what the first dispute was all about? What was God's first message? Do you remember? Go back to chapter 1. God comes to them and He says to them what? I love you. And He reminds them here, You've profaned Israel. I love Israel. And now we get to the way they did it. And here at the end of verse 11, And has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is what they did. They married foreigners. And these foreigners were not just any foreigners. They were pagan foreigners. They were idolatrous foreigners. Now, there is no absolute prohibition in the Old Testament, and much less in the New Testament, there's nothing like this in the New Testament, about marrying foreigners. In fact, there's some very famous foreign wives in the Old Testament. Uh, we could think of Moses' wife, we could think of uh, Rahab, we could think of Ruth, some very famous foreign wives. And so there was no prohibition of more marrying foreigners as long as those foreigners became part of Israel. As long as they became believers and and embraced the God of Israel, then they could be married. But there was a prohibition about marrying pagan, idolatrous foreigners. And this was a big problem in Israel. This was prohibited if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4 and it says this, don't marry them. Why? Because they will take your hearts astray and you will go after other gods. They will have an influence on you to, to divert your faith from the true God to their, to their idols. And that was a problem in Israel before the exile. And the most famous practitioner of marrying foreign women was the one who had a thousand Women. It was the king, King Solomon, 300 wives and 700 concubines. And if you go about uh, mistresses, basically, and if you go back to 1 Kings 11, the first four verses, we find what happened with Solomon. What did those foreign wives do? Just what? Just what God had said they would do. They diverted his heart away from the Lord so that he... The one who built the temple ended his life by building altars to pagan gods. That's what this this prohibition was about. And then, God sent them into exile in part because of this faithlessness. He purified them during their time in Babylon. He sent them back to the land, and now they would be okay. And we read in Ezra, we read in Nehemiah, What was the big problem after they came back from the exile? They were marrying foreigners again, and their hearts were being drawn aside from the Lord. Look at Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. How does, how does Malachi respond to this? Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob. That is exile. Remove them from the people of God. Any, here it says, Descendant, but you probably have a footnote. This is a an expression that we we we're not quite sure how to translate it. I don't think descendant. I think the idea is to is to cut off any man who does this. Not the descendant, because the descendants aren't doing this; they are doing this. So I think we should read this: uh, that may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob anyone at all who does this, and then who has the audacity to bring an offering on the altar of the Lord of hosts. And so they were being faithless. They were marrying these pagan foreign women. And then they were going. And they were doing their religious duties. They were going to the temple. They were giving their offerings for the the priests to offer them to the Lord. But I want you to notice something. What had happened with their worship even though they were going to the temple of the Lord, their worship had become essentially pagan worship. Look at, look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. That's how pagans worship their gods. They, they take offerings, and no matter how they're living their lives, they think our gods are obligated to be happy with us because we're, we're, we're doing what they said we should do. We're giving offerings no matter how we live. That's what they were doing. They were being faithless to one another and they were bringing offerings and thinking God would accept them. That's, that's pagan worship. And then they were, it says, Weeping and groaning with tears, so they're being very emotional in their worship, as if as if their their emotion, their excessive emotion, could get God's attention and get God's favor. So we see that the wives were having their influence, even though they were worshiping the temple. They were worshiping as if God were one of the idols, as if they were pagans. Now, um, the um, the same principle here, the same principle... Oh, by the way, it says, somehow they figured out that God was no longer regarding their offerings. How did they figure that out? Well, probably through Malachi uh, or other prophets after the exile. But so they were, they were upset. They were saying, this is not working. Even though we're, even though we're checking the right boxes, even though we're, we're giving the offerings, and even though we're groaning and weeping and wailing and crying... God's not accepting us. What's wrong with God? Why isn't Why isn't He doing that? Now, um, this problem of marrying unbelievers continues to be a problem to this day. And if you go to the New Testament, you find that there is much freedom in the New Testament, and it says, "You may marry if you're a believer. You may marry anyone you want." Obviously, male and marrying female. A man may marry whatever woman he wants. Obviously, no relatives. But there's only one exclusion. And that is, the person has to be a believer. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Well, First Corinthians 6.14 says that we ought not to be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some people say, now wait a minute. Paul is not talking about marriage there. And I agree. He's not talking about marriage. He's talking much more broadly. He's talking about whatever kind of relationship that would obligate you to go in tandem with another person. And let me ask you, does marriage fall into that category? Yes, it does. In fact, it's, it's the relationship that is the, the the strongest yoke of them all. So he's not only talking about marriage, but he's not talking about less than marriage. And that is the strongest yoke you could possibly imagine. And then, in 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine, he's giving advice or 739, he's giving advice to widows. And he's saying, you know, times are difficult, you might want to remain a widow. Because marriage is more complicated than singlehood, or singleness. But if you want to get married, fine. Marry whomever you want. Only in the Lord. Only a believer. That's the restriction in the New Testament. And I have seen people plunge themselves, Christians plunge themselves into great difficulties, oftentimes into conflictive marriages, oftentimes into divorce, because they didn't obey this. So this this same call in the Old Testament is there in the New Testament, but it's much broader. You can marry somebody of a, a different race. You can marry somebody of a different age. You can some marry somebody of a different language, a different height, a, a different background, or whatever. But just make sure that that person is a believer. That's it. Marry a believer. Now, um, the people put up their challenge, the challenge here is very brief, and it's just the first part of verse 14. And it's this. Why not? That's the challenge. And the why not is in answer to the fact that God is no longer accepting their sacrifices. He's not favorable toward them. And they're saying, why not? I mean, we're, we're doing the right rituals, we're going through the right motions, and we're doing it with excessive emotion, why wouldn't God accept us like the pagan gods accept their practitioners? That's the question. And now we get to the rest of the story, the problem, where God demonstrates Israel's faithlessness. You see, he says here in verse 14, "...because the Lord was witness," between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Okay, now we get the rest of the story. Not only were they marrying foreign women, pagan foreign women, they were divorcing their legitimate Israelite wives in order to do it. So now we see what they were doing. So they were putting away, divorcing their wives, in order to marry the foreign women. And here's the the idea of the trophy wife. We don't know exactly all the motivations, but but they were putting away the wife of their youth, with whom they'd been married for a long time, in order to marry these foreign women. Now, notice how the wives are, are described here. They're described as the wife of your youth, which probably indicates arranged marriages. Probably that there was an arrangement made when the, the the boy and the girl were young between the families, which is how it was done, basically everywhere through much of history. And uh, so they married. They married very young, and it was arranged for them. So she really was the wife of their youth, promised to them since they were children. And also, it calls her your companion, your companion. And this is really beautiful. This word companion, friendship, is all through Scripture, but this is the only place where it is referred to the wife. Where she is referred to as the partner. She is referred to as the companion, the associate of the husband. And she is also called your wife by covenant. By covenant. And so, this is a contractual relationship that has stipulations, that has obligations, that has privileges, and these are spelled out in Scripture. And so, this is the wife of your youth. You've been promised to her, she was promised to you since since you were young. This is the, the wife of your companionship. She has been your partner in life moving ahead and building with you in life, and you have been constructing this life together as associates, as equals, as partners in this, this project that you have. And, in addition, she is the wife of the covenant. Now, let's think about how covenants work. Covenants are pacts. Covenants are contracts. And once we enter into those, what rules... The covenant does. You see, this is how marriage works, and other covenants as well, but marriage even more strongly. We voluntarily move in. Nobody forces us to move into marriage. We voluntarily move into the covenant of marriage. And then, what rules that relationship? The covenant does. But see, we make a mistake sometimes. We think, well, I voluntarily got in, so I can what? voluntarily get out but it doesn't work that way when there's a covenant involved if you voluntarily go in you are submitting to the norms of the covenant and once you go in the covenant takes over and it's not a an optional thing anymore you have already submitted to that covenant the covenant rules and because the covenant rules that's how we can be faithful to one another because if we were just up to, to our vicissitudes, if we were just up to, to how we feel one day or another about our husband or our wife, uh, our, 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 our marriages would be on a very shaky ground. But if the, the basis of our marriage relationship is the covenant that God has established, this covenant of marriage, there is a firm foundation for marriage and the, the ability to be faithful one to another. And because it's a covenant... Covenants have witnesses. We still have that, don't we? That's been a little tricky, hasn't it, to get married during this pandemic. We haven't been able to get all the witnesses together that we would like to get together. But but even if it's a very, very simple wedding, you have witnesses there. And what do the witnesses do? The witnesses say, I heard them. I was there. I, I heard what they said. They said, I promised to do this. I promise to be faithful to you and to you alone until death separates us and the witnesses stand up. Their job is to say, wait a minute, remember your your promise. I heard you. You did it voluntarily, and now you are submitted to these promises, so I am here to help you keep those promises. Who's the witness in this case? Look at verse 14. It says, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. We have human witnesses at our weddings, but there is another witness who is the guarantor and the enforcer of the the completion of those promises, and it is God Himself. He is the witness at every marriage ceremony. Now, here we get into the difficult verses. And uh, they're verses 15 and 16. But here we're getting into the proper response And I want you to see, these are difficult verses to translate and interpret, but the message is abundantly clear. So we don't have to go away scratching our heads. Verse 15, it says, "...did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking?" Now that's one way to translate it. But let me read you kind of word for word what this verse says, kind of direct Hebrew to English. "...not one He made, and remnant of Spirit to Him..." and what the one seeking seed of God. Now that, because of our ignorance, we need to fill in some blanks there that they would have understood, but we're not really getting. And, and this, this could be a question, or more than one question. They could be statements, declarations. The one could refer to the one God, as they do here. It could refer to the one couple that are made one when they get married. Or it could refer to no one, because it says not one. So there are a number of different interpretive options here. Also, the remnant of the Spirit is a portion of the Spirit. Is probably the Holy Spirit. But it's not clear who has this portion of the Spirit. And uh, in addition, this refer- reference to godly children, children of God or seed of God, probably is referring to godly children. And here, it's an interesting connection, isn't it? See, if, if the covenant is broken, the children suffer. Or, if, if we marry outside of the faith... The children are confused and they grow up in a in a conflicted environment. And however we might translate this, it is demonstrably true that if you want to build a Christian home, you need to marry a Christian. That's demonstrably true. And if you don't, you will have a very difficult time raising your children consistently in the faith. Now, the beginning of 16 is also difficult. Some translations have it as, God hates divorce. And here it has it as men hating their husbands, or men hating their wives and divorcing them. So this translation is, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. Other translations have it God hating divorce. So it's not clear if it's men hating their wives and divorcing them or God hating divorce, both of which are true. But here it's translated as the husbands hating their wives and divorcing them. Now, here it's focusing on the men, but with women in the United States initiating 70% of the divorces, then what we have here applies not only to men, but also to women, and the message is very clear. There are some legitimate reasons in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to divorce among believers. They are there. That's a study for another time. But there are legitimate reasons, and so not all divorce is illegitimate. And in fact, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we will find that they, they promoted divorce from these foreign women, and it's, a, it's another study to talk about that and what these exceptions are. But one of those exceptions is not, I don't like her anymore, or I found someone that I like better. Or, I found someone who's younger and more interesting, or richer and more attractive. Or, I found a guy who can take care of me better, or who's more romantic. None of those are legitimate reasons. And that's what was going on here. They were hating their wives, they were tired of their wives, the wives of the youth, the wives of the covenant, their companions, and going for somebody else. And he says, if you do this, if you divorce for one of these illegitimate reasons... You've covered your garment with crimes. Here's another expression. We don't know exactly what it means, but it, it looks like something like blood on your hands. That you're guilty, and it's obvious that you're guilty. Now, those are the difficult aspects of these verses. But notice something that is very, very clear. Look at verse 15. It says, Guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The end of 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Any question about the message there? Very clear, isn't it? We need to guard ourselves. It's not clear if this is the Holy Spirit or our spirit, but guard yourselves. Married people, guard yourselves. You need to protect yourselves from any sort of outside interference, so that you can be faithful and not be faithless to the wife or to the husband who is your legitimate partner and spouse. And I want you to notice something. And that's this idea of covenant. Have you noticed how covenant comes out a lot in Malachi? The covenant with Levi. Now we have the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites. Now we have the covenant of marriage. And all these covenants fit together. And here in this text... We have the covenant with God and the covenant with our spouses are fitting together. And we can't fulfill the covenant with God. We can't be in a proper relationship with God if we're not in proper relationships with our spouses. We find this in the New Testament. It says, if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. That's what first John four twenty says. Because you can't love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother or sister whom you have seen. And then Peter says to husbands, says, Live with your wives in an understanding way, so that your prayers are not hindered. You see, your prayer life can suffer if you don't live with your wife in in a faithful, understanding way. So these are not covenants that we can separate. Well, I'll fulfill this one but not that one. I can have a great relationship with God while not fulfilling the terms of my covenant with my wife or with my husband. And we find in the New Testament that these are brought together even more closely. The covenant with God and the covenant with our spouses. And how is that? Well, we find in Ephesians, the text that we read earlier in the service today, Ephesians chapter 5, that the relationship between Christ and His church is an eternal relationship, and it's the pattern of the relationship between husband and wife. And so here we have a very, very close connection, and even a graphic portrayal of what marriage is all about. And Paul goes through this section and talks about Christ and the church, and we think he's talking about marriage, and then he says, and I'm talking about Christ and the church, but this applies to marriage. And what is the basic relationship? This is the relationship. God loves us so much that He sent Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. And what does the head do? Oftentimes we think, what the head does is the head gives orders. And Christ, of course, does give us His Word. But what the head does, acting for His church, is the head lays down His life for His church. Husbands, husbands, this is how you fulfill your covenant relationship with your wives. Act like Christ toward your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid down His life for the church. He lived for the church. He died for the church. That's your job, husbands. And that's how we're going to be faithful to our wives and keep this covenant in which we happily and voluntarily entered into. Following in the footsteps of Christ Christ, who gave His life for the church. And then the response of the church is to honor and to respect and to submit to Christ. And he says, Wives, wives, you get to play that out as well. You get to show the the love of the church for Christ who gave Himself for His bride. And here we have these two covenants that are brought so closely together. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. And in that way, you will fulfill the covenant and you will... Be entering into that relationship, not only with each other, but sustaining that, that close relationship, that covenant relationship with the Lord. So, what's Malachi do? Malachi tries to get rid of the negative. Don't divorce. He tries to say, don't be faithless. So he's trying to negate the negative. He's telling us what not to do. But then the New Testament raises the bar for the positive. Not only don't divorce your wives, husbands, but the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, and wives, not only don't divorce your, your husbands, but but honor your husbands as the church honors Christ. And then, as we started, with some objections to the Bible, or we started with some people, what they say about the Bible. Oh, they say it's irrelevant. They say it's it's not understandable. You know how you can help make people understand what the Bible is all about? By having a Christian marriage. Because that's a remarkable thing. If they look at you, husband, and they see you loving your wife as Christ loved the church, and if they look at you, wife, and see you honoring your husband as as the church honors Christ, they will say, well, I I don't know what's in that book of yours, but I see something in you that I don't see anywhere else. I see a a level of, of love and of sacrifice and of commitment and faithfulness that I don't find any other places. Please, tell me about this God of yours who loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. I want to know that God too. And I want to experience that kind of a a love relationship that I see in you. How can we preach the Gospel? Many ways we can preach the Gospel. Well, one of the main ways in this day and age and in every age that we can preach the Gospel to others is to live out Christian marriages. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the relevancy of Your Word We thank You that that a a book that was written 2,400 years ago to a people on the other side of the world speaking different languages, that it's relevant to us today. And we pray, O God, that You would help us to hear its message, that You would keep us from being faithless, that You would enable us to be faithful one to another, and therefore faithful to You because You are always faithful to us. We thank You that... You loved Israel, that You love us, and You showed that love by sending Jesus. And we pray, O God, for our marriages, those that exist now, those that will be formed in the future, that You would enable us always to be faithful to each other in thought, word, and deed, so that we could give to our children that kind of an inheritance, and so that we could show the world the love of Christ for His church. And we pray this in His name. Amen.